we continue to worship together this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, specifically verse 14, which is the seventh commandment. If you're new to Dawson, this is your first time here with us. We're walking through a series in the Ten Commandments. We're taking each commandment uh, successively there, and we come now to the seventh. Before we dive into the word of the Lord this morning and study it and, and reflect upon it, I do remind you and do continue to call us to prayer for the intervention of God and also the protection of God upon the people of the Ukraine and understanding uh, the, the devastation that is occurring there. And we as a church want to be on our knees in prayer. We also as a church want to be strategic in ways that we come alongside of what God is doing in Ukraine for his work and his glory in the midst of unimaginable uh, diabolical uh, plans that are occurring there on the ground Uh, We have a member of our church who is the son. His name is Slavic Peace, and his wife uh, is Tanya, and they're both from the Ukraine, and his father is the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a senior at Stanford University, joined our church about a year ago, and we've been in touch with him because his father is leading a a wonderful effort in the midst of these unimaginable uh, refugee crisis that is occurring And we're in day 10 of this, and it started with 30 to 40 refugees that came into the Baptist Theological Seminary there, 15 miles outside of the border of Poland. That gained steam to be about 90 to 100 a few days ago. And as of an update that I received at the beginning of this morning, they've had the last two days, uh, 275 to 300 refugees. This is the last stop, last stop for many uh, refugees that are fleeing the Ukraine. And they receive food and they receive shelter, they receive prayers, and they receive the hospitality of the people of God in such a difficult, unimaginable uh, situation. And so we want to come alongside of that effort, good effort in the midst of this difficult time. And so we already have dispersed some, some funds from Dawson through your faithful giving that we've been able to disperse those to the front lines of that work. Also, we know that there are many of you that are here who would want to give above and beyond to that work. As you leave today, you'll see offering receptacles. You can put your gift there. You need to notify uh, to note on it, Ukrainian Relief, and also you can go to Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. You can go to our website. There's a header on the website. You can click that, and it'll give you some more information and give you also ways that you could give to that effort and to that uh, cause that, that we, as the, the body of Christ here in Birmingham, want to lock shoulders with We come now to the seventh commandment as we walk through the Ten Commandments, and it's just five words. They're piercing words. They're words that are personal. They're words in many ways that we're hesitant to to talk about for a variety of reasons, but they're words that are immensely relevant to our day and to our time. The words are simple. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 14, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. These five words, unfortunately, are words that are front page words for our culture. They're relevant on Twitter handles. As you walk through timelines, uh, you can see from week to week to week that there's rarely a week that goes by that's not embroiled in scandal of some sort. The names, positions, it changes, no doubt, 
But each week it is going to be a sort of a, a rotating cast of, of characters that we know or don't know, where, whether it might be politicians, it might be Fortune 500 CEOs, it very well may be coaches or movie stars that are embroiled in uh, an accusation of adultery and the scandal that comes around that. This is not something that the church is immune to by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, each week, you can, you can hear if you, if you listen and if you look of, of pastors and church leaders in the midst of the accusations of adultery or in the midst of the scandal that comes alongside of that. And it's personal in, in so many ways because these accusations or these actions, they represent, they represent families and schools and communities and businesses and churches that know full well the devastation. This isn't theoretical. This isn't hypothetical. When, when the fault line of an institution, it would be the church or be it a school or, or be it the, the very uh, foundation of a family has this crack of distrust that is brought about because of the accusation or the actions of adultery, we know that th- this is real devastation that is wrought in real time. And it very well might not be your immediate family. It might be your extended family. It might not be your extended family or your immediate family, but it might be your friends. It might not be your friends, but your community, the city that you live in, this state, this nation. This commandment is, it is relevant, isn't it? It is potent in, in many ways because to ignore what God has prohibited is to do so to the actual downfall of our families, the actual downfall of the church and the downfall of our communities that we live in here. This is a real word for the real world that we live in. It's a word that has a foundation behind it. We'd be remiss to not back up and to think in light of the seventh commandment, what is the very foundation that undergirds what is being prohibited here? And that is God's gift of marital intimacy. If I was to ask you, what is the first commandment in the Bible? We might be tempted, especially in a series on the Ten Commandments, to turn to Exodus chapter 20 and to find the first commandment there that is listed But we would miss, we'd miss the first commandment in scriptures on the first page of the Bible. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Just hear it for yourself. And God blessed them, them being Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. First commandment in scripture, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I know that many of you don't need to be informed of this, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded that marriage is not our invention. Marriage is is not the invention of the church. Marriage is not the invention of sociologists that are saying to themselves hundreds of years ago, what's an institution that we could create that would divide the work labor we be able to divide the sorrows and multiply the joys and an outcomes out of our human invention and human ingenuity, marriage. No, 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 no. First page of Scripture. First page of Scripture, we have the first commandment that gives us this invitation to God's design 
of Adam and Eve, male and female, created in this complementary manner so that two can become one. To what end? Go with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's design for marriage is clear. First two pages of the Bible. It's unambiguous that man and, uh, man and woman, they're, they're created in this complementary manner as a gift to one another, but also to the very gift of human existence. It goes without saying that biologically you sit in these pews because of the very design of God. We exist. None of us create ourselves out of nothing. We are here because of the gift of procreation and the very human existence is dependent upon the biological reality that God has embedded in his creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And to ignore that or to deny that is to deny what is fundamental and essential to life on this earth and the continuation of life on this earth. But, but the gift of marital intimacy, the gift of sexual intimacy, is not a gift just that is only for procreation, but it is, it is a gift that is relational at its heart, that love and joy and pleasure are God's good gift that is given to a male and a female in marriage. At times, we as the church, we, we get a little, a little sheepish about this. At times, we as the church, we blush too easily, even using the words that God so clearly gives us in his word. And when we're hesitant to speak about this, I assure you and remind you that the world has nothing that they're hesitant to talk about is a counter, a counter vision of what God has designed. The Bible is not sheepish about it. There's a whole book of the Bible Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, it unabashedly revels in the gift of, of marital intimacy. The very first words in the Song of Solomon are, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Nothing prudish about the Bible. Nothing hesitant about the Bible celebrating God's good gift of marital intimacy. Now, does that mean that the only way that, that you can truly be fulfilled in life the only way that you can experience love and the only way that you can find joy is found in marriage. And the answer is a resounding no to that. It's important, but don't forget that the perfect embodiment of humanity was Jesus himself who was never married. And don't forget to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when the Apostle Paul is talking to a church that has all types of sexual dysfunction, chapter after chapter, and he talks about the, the gift and the calling of singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not a concession, but it's actually a gift and a, and a calling. And don't forget also, while we're thinking about this, where we're headed as Christians. We're headed to a new heaven and a new earth. We're headed to this wonderful vision of what it is going to be like for the body of Christ to relate to our Savior. And we, the bride, are with. We're with Him. And in that moment, we need to understand that I don't think we're going to forget our marriages. We don't forget our human existence here on this earth. But it takes a back seat. 
So we're not first and foremost husband and wife in heaven for any of our, our earthly marriages, but we're first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't think in terms of when we get to heaven, we're just going to get this mortgage-free upgrade of a mansion that is, we're going to have like the Eldridge household on it. No, we, we have this great intimacy that is far greater than what we experience here on earth. Is that mysterious? Yes. Can I explain that fully? No. Does the Bible explain that fully? No. But is it true? Yes. Now, with that said, that Jesus himself experienced the fullness of life without marriage. Paul talks about singleness as a gift. We, we see that reality of where we're headed here. We should not, even with those important caveats, forget to say that marriage, while it's not the only path to human flourishing, it is good. And it is a gift. And it is of God's design and it is to be celebrated, and it is vitally important for our society. It's vitally important for the church of Jesus Christ. So surprise, surprise. If it's in Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, surprise, surprise, that there's not an enemy named Satan who has a bullseye upon marriages. Because Satan, in and of himself, he is completely unoriginal. He doesn't create anything of his own uh, fruition. He, he is always taking from God's design, and he's always, he's always adding to it or taking away from it. Do you remember when Satan comes in to the Garden of Eden? The first thing that comes from him is a question, did God really say? Did God really say? And so what he asked of Eve in that moment is, is, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now he's misquoting God. But what Satan is doing is, is he's showing us, he's showing us his true colors as the deceiver. He continues in your ears, in our culture, in the church, outside of the church, to whisper and to shout at times, did God really say that sexual intimacy is only to be in the confines of a husband and wife in marriage till death do them part. Did he really say that? And the sins of sexuality are sins that take God's good gift and they distort and they alter. So whether we're talking about adultery or we're talking about fornication or we're talking about homosexuality here, it is the enemy saying, did God really say male and female only? Husband and wife only? Did he really say that? And don't think that you don't have to answer that question. Don't think that you, in 2022, can remain neutral as to what the answer to that question is. What did God really say about sex and marriage? I lived and grew up 30 miles outside of the Mississippi River. You get to Vicksburg, Mississippi, and you have the Mississippi 
100 miles from Minnesota flows into the Gulf of Mexico. You understand this. I mean, 13 of our states were founded around the Mississippi River. I mean, we go back to Native American forebears that were here on this land long before uh, we got here hundreds of years ago, uh, European settlers. Uh, you understand that the Mississippi has always been this vital channel of commerce, this vital channel of, 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 of beauty and recreation. Civilizations have been formed around the Mississippi for thousands of years. Even more recently, in the more recent United States history, you have, you have the, the understanding of America's development and even some of the greatest rifts in our history. The Civil War itself can be understood as we, as we float down the Mississippi and understand some of the most significant battles that occurred. Why? Because commerce is important. Civilization is important. Communities that uh, rose up around the Mississippi were so important. And, and some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen right over the Mississippi River Bridge there in Natchez, Mississippi, or Vicksburg, Mississippi, and seeing the beauty of the cascading colors that shine upon that river and reflect upon it at that moment. We've seen that. We know that there's beauty that comes. We know that there's commerce that comes. There's much when that river is within its banks that brings about flourishing. But when that river has overflowed and flooded, Utter devastation. Utter devastation for homes, utter devastation for communities. When you, when you take that river and you put it within its proper banks, there's so much life and so much flourishing that occurs. But when it spills over, that design there, then there's, uh, it wreaks havoc upon those around. And do not, do not be misled. Marital intimacy is a powerful current. It is a powerful current within the banks that God has designed. But when it spills over, it wreaks havoc and destruction upon individual homes, families, communities, churches. God's gift of marital intimacy is seen in Scripture. God's call for marital fidelity is seen in Scripture. God gives us these five words in the seventh commandment because he knows the harm that can be done when we ignore this stop sign that he gives us. Notice that the seventh commandment, this is obvious, but I think there's a divine ordering of the Ten Commandments. It, it, it comes after the sixth and it precedes the eighth. The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. The eighth commandment you will we'll look at next week is you shall not steal. And notice how adultery in so many ways is a combination of what comes before and what comes after in the ordering of the commandments. Adultery is murder. There, there is the killing of trust that occurs when the vows of a marriage are broken. There's murder that occurs. Not only is adultery murderous in intent, but adultery is a thief. Stills joy. And it stills, it stills uh, from, from children that oftentimes are, are, are there in the midst of the shrapnel of, of the unfolding of, of the vows there. It steals from a community. It steals from a husband and a wife. God's designed for marriage here. One of the greatest privileges I have as a pastor, and there are many fantastic privileges that I have. But one of the most unique aspects of being a pastor is to be able to officiate weddings. 
And, and it's such a joyful time. I, and I, I'm, I'm in proximity. I, mean, I can touch the, the groom and the bride there before me. I can feel the nervous energy of that groom to the left of me. I can see the delight in the eyes of the bride before me. I get to hear the nervousness of their vows as they give them to one another. I get to see the little things that they whisper, and I hear the little things they whisper to one another. It is a holy privilege to be in such close proximity. It's one of the most joyous occasions, not only for for that bride and that groom, but for all of the attendants that are in the wedding party, for all of the family and the friends that are there. They, They come to that moment, and what gives such joy is these vows are exchanged, can can give so much pain when those vows are broken. As we walk through scripture, we see why God takes this so seriously. When you're walking through the Old Testament laws, you see in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, that there's, there was a, in the Old Testament law a penalty for adultery. And you know what that penalty was? It was death. That seems a little steep. That seems a little severe. But what we see here is, is God's design for marriage, the prioritization of marriage. He takes this very seriously because he knows, he knows the havoc that can occur. He knows the pain that can occur. So we get the seventh commandment. Why? Because God loves us that much. We get the seventh commandment because he cares for us so much. He gives us the seventh commandment because he knows when we give our heart to one, it should be an exclusive commitment to that others. And when we share our hearts with others, it just breaks down so much and it robs and it murders the very depth of who we are. There's a book of the Bible, Hosea. The whole theme of the Bible is this metaphor, this illustration of unfaithfulness between God and and his people. Now, we shouldn't hear hear just this as a prohibition, so we think to ourselves, how far can I get to the seventh commandment before I step over to this sort of chasm that is below here? That's not how we should first and foremost hear this commandment, but rather we should hear as an admonition. For, for every person that is here who is married, we should listen to the seventh commandment, seventh commandment as a, an admonition of commitment for us as husbands and wives to invest in our marriages, to protect our marriages, to fight for our marriages, to pray for our marriages, to prioritize our marriages, because it's God's good gift for you and your spouse. If God has given you adoptively children or biologically children, you have a good gift in the way that God has blessed you. If, if God has, has blessed you as, with family and, and friends, uh, that marital commitment is one that is life-giving to those you work with, those that you go to church with here. And, and we can come to this passage, and if we're single, you could say, ah, check it off, it, this doesn't apply to me. Or on the flip side, there, there's some can feel as if this commandment sort of has an expiration date. So there's some beautiful marriages that have five decades and six decades. And they think to themselves, well, hey, you know, we, we've not gone down that road of, of an adulterous affair. And so check it off. This doesn't apply to me. But this is the thing with all of these commandments. Jesus takes the letter of the law and then he interprets it to give us the spirit of the law. And we're able to peer into the heart of this commandment. So not so fast for any of us here, regardless of our marital status. Jesus is speaking to us as we listen to the seventh commandment. Notice the heart of the 
seventh commandment is, you have heard that it was said, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the seventh commandment. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. These are the strongest possible words our Savior could give us. Speaking not just to the physical act of committing adultery or the, or the secret rendezvous that a husband or wife might have. What Jesus is saying is, is you can never leave home and commit adultery in your heart. Notice in this passage here, in verse 28, he talks about everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. That passage means an imaginative gaze. It isn't that a person notices the beauty of the opposite sex and says, uh, that is a beautiful person right there. That is not what Jesus is prohibiting there. He's not calling us to walk around with our eyes closed lest we, we break this word in Matthew chapter 5. It, it is the imaginative gaze that consumes the person. It is the imaginative gaze that doesn't see that other person first and foremost as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, doesn't see them first and foremost as a person that bears the image of God, but sees them first and foremost as a person that is here for their pleasure and their satisfaction. This is what Jesus is using the strongest words to call us to flee from. Now, now there have been people throughout church history that have read, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's far better. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And they've read it and they've wanted to be serious about their faith. And they've actually, they've actually followed the literal wording of this passage and they've cut parts of their body off to live under Matthew chapter five. And I would say, as all of us who take scripture seriously, Sometimes the, the best way for us to take Scripture seriously is not to read it literally, but to read it literarily. This is Jesus using exaggeration. This is Jesus using hyperbole. He is saying that we must pursue with utmost commitment, purity. You can gouge out your eyes and for decades down the road still struggle with lust because it's a heart issue. Now, you could cut your hands off and still struggle with anger and malice and strife because it's a heart issue. So what Jesus is calling us to is, is a sword that is far sharper than any physical sword. We need a sword that penetrates to our hearts. And this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. As we pursue purity, as we pursue purity, it is vastly important that, yes, there are healthy boundaries in our life. Yes, there are, we, we live in a day and age. Do, do I have to go on with, with all of the statistics that tells you of, of the way that we're swimming in a culture of pornography now in 2022? Or the hellish experience that millions of 98% are young ladies that they suffer at the hands of sexual trafficking. We live in a day and age 
where there are hellish repercussions. And Jesus knows this. And he knows this, that oftentimes those that are innocent are taken advantage of. And so as, as men and women who stand under the word of God, our first call is not first and foremost. It's not first and foremost, what healthy boundaries do we have? That is important. Of what I don't look at, what I don't let into our house through our television, what kind of filtering things I have on my phone, all of that is vitally important. But we must be captivated by a far greater beauty than the physical beauty around us that we're tempted to lust after. And we, as followers of Jesus, we must be captivated with the intimacy of our Savior that is found when we are on our knees and in his word, pondering what is ultimate perfection, what is ultimate beauty. And it is there on our knees that we are captivated by one who is far greater and far more beautiful than the siren songs of sin that sing for your attention and my attention. And they sing for us to give our hearts to them. And it will never satisfy. There's some of you that are struggling. They're struggling with lust. And you give your eyes and you give your hearts. And I'm here to tell you it will never satisfy. It will never fulfill that craving. There's only one who will. And that is the beautiful one. The perfect one. And as we stand under this passage here, there is a word for all of us, whether we're single or whether we're married. And that word for all of us is to pursue purity by pursuing intimacy with Christ. That first and foremost, we do battle for our purity on our knees in communion with our Savior. And it is out of that posture of dependency that we see our sisters and our brothers, first and foremost, as brothers and sisters in Christ, image bearers. If you're married, there's a word for us. And that, that word for every married couple here is to pray for and to prioritize your marriage. If you're struggling with impurity here, there's a word for you this morning, and that is to turn to Jesus in confession, to turn to Jesus in repentance, to, to behold him and his radiant purity as something that is far greater than the sin that is, that is singing for your eyes. Maybe you're here today and a part of your story is that you, you cross the line of adultery and you feel, you feel maybe just overwhelmed with a sense of shame and overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. And I'm here to tell you, turn to Jesus. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin and turn to him who is the faithful one who died for all of our unfaithfulness. Adultery is a heinous sin, but it is not the unpardonable sin. And no matter what you thought, no matter what you have done, if you are here today and you would turn to him, you will be received with his love and you will be received with his forgiveness. If you're here and your marriage has been wrecked by adultery and it was not of your choosing, this is a painful sermon maybe for you to hear. Because you know fresh just how this murders. You know fresh just how this robs you here. And you feel as if there's guilt that overwhelms you and shame and regret that overwhelms you. And you're just overwhelmed by what could have been. And you know that Satan prowls. Because you've seen it. You've seen it up close and personal here. 
And I'm just here to remind you that you're loved. You're loved by one who will never let you down. You're loved by one who will never break his vows to you. You're loved by one who is there for you and loves you in the deepest way. So turn to Jesus. He is the perfect one. Turn to Jesus. He is the faithful one. He will embrace you in his love, even when those who say that they will embrace you to death do them part. Fail to keep that vow. Oh, my sister in Christ, my brother in Christ, maybe you're here and your marriage ended years ago or decades ago, and there's shame and there's regret and there's guilt, and you almost didn't come to church because you knew I was on the sixth commandment, I was going to go to the seventh commandment, I wasn't going to skip it, you knew I wasn't going to skip it, but you didn't want to be here. And I'm just here to tell you, no matter if you cross that line or someone else cross that line, no matter if you are overwhelmed with lust and impurity, if we turn to Jesus, our sins do not get the last word in your life or in my life. And if you turn to Jesus and behold his beautiful glory, we get to sing and we get to live this wonderful words that there is no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. There's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man that can ever pluck you from his hands. So till he returns or calls me home, here today, here today, and here today, in the power of Christ, you stand. We stand. Let us pray.